All right, folks, it is time for us to get started. If you will find your seat, we want to welcome those that are joining us online or watching this later through our Equip podcast, however you're joining us. Uh, we're uh, glad you are. For those that are in the room, I'm certainly glad that I don't have to teach this in here by myself. So thank you for being here. I want to address a couple of things. Uh, I want us to pray for one thing that I want to tell you about um, the next two weeks before, before we get started, because I may get into this and not have time at the end. And so I figured if I don't talk about it at the beginning, I, uh, I may not leave myself enough time to talk about it at the end for people to go get their kids out of family ministry stuff. So uh, let me talk about the next two weeks. I will be leaving on Tuesday uh, for, uh, for Africa. Um, Nick Hamilton and I from here and Mark Turner and one other guy from uh, DeVargas, who we saw the video on a few weeks ago at Praise and Go Sunday from Redemption Heights, are all going to, uh, to East Africa together, work with the L family. I pray for us. I normally leave on a Sunday. Leaving on Tuesday, uh, we did that because of Josiah's schedule and some teaching stuff that, they're, that they were doing and he needed to complete before we came. Um, one of the reasons I always like to leave on Sunday is because it gets me back. I only miss one Wednesday night. Well, leaving on a Tuesday is going to necessitate that I miss two Wednesday nights, which I don't love doing, but we needed to do it this way uh, for this trip. So first off, if you would make sure you pray for us, we have a lot of teaching to do. We're going to be doing some training with uh, the Great Joy Bible Church leaders. We're going to be doing two different pastor trainings. Everybody that's going is going to teach some. Mark and I are going to teach a lot. And so pray for us. It, um it's always good to have a full schedule when we go. Obviously, if we go over there, we want to have a very full schedule. We have a very, very full schedule, including some travel while we're over there, which is a little bit unique. So uh, pray, pray for all of that. But I do want to tell you about the next two Wednesday nights um, and what's going to happen. We are still going to have a quit. And I really want you to be here. I, I want you to be here for both of them. But I definitely want a good crowd in the room. And I'm going to, I'm going to say this Sunday when we have Church at the Park. Uh, but next Wednesday night, we have a guest coming from outside. And so it's always great if we have good representation in the room. I've, I talked to him, talked to him a couple of times. And I told him we have a lot of people that watch online. We have a lot of people that listen late because of, because of work schedules and everything they have going on. Uh, but I really want to have a good crowd in the room. It, it, the guy that's coming next week is Gary Sanders. He's a pastor at, um, at First Baptist Church of Norfolk. And, um, his whole ministry there, and he's been doing this for a very long time, is uh, he is the minister or the pastor for military ministry. So they have a large military outreach there. They do a lot of things with our military community. Obviously, being at First Baptist Norfolk, they're closer to Norfolk Naval, Naval Base and those kind of things. But um, he knows a lot about military culture, knows a lot about how to reach out in the military culture. And that's what he's going to be talking about next week which is really exciting to me because obviously that's a big part of our community and a big part of our culture. And so if you can make sure you're here next week at 6.30 in person, even those of you that are watching this online, maybe next week you make the, you know, take off work a little early, do whatever you gotta do, but get up here um, because I really think you're gonna be blessed. Gary came and shared a couple of months ago, we hosted a state convention meeting here uh, for pastors to be trained in this. And Gary was one of the guys that shared at that. And when it was over, I thought I got to have him come and talk to our church since he's local. It makes it easy. And so he's going to be here next week. The following week, Pastor Michael, our family pastor is going to be in here that Wednesday. Uh, I'll be flying back at that point, but uh, still won't be back. And so Michael's going to talk about how to share the gospel with your, um, 
children, grandchildren, with, with people who are teenagers and children right now and, and what's happening in the current generation and how they're thinking about religious things and, and good ways to uh, influence uh, our, our homes or even if your children are grown, as many of them are grandchildren, great-grandchildren for some of you that are in here uh, with the good news of Jesus. This works out really well because... Um, that is the week of our parenting conference. So actually that whole week, we're gonna be focusing on parenting. Uh, Michael's gonna preach that Sunday on uh, a Psalm that deals with the blessing of children in the home. We're gonna talk about sharing the gospel with uh, children and teenagers that Wednesday night. And then that Saturday, we have our parenting conference. So that whole week is kind of dedicated to that theme. We actually didn't plan it that way. <laughs> I should have just said, isn't that neat that we plan it that way? But it, it kind of worked out like that. So that. That's really good. So the next two Wednesday nights, we will have a quip in this same series. I just won't be here. So pray for me as I'm gone. Be here next week for Gary. Um, I think it's gonna be a huge blessing to you. Maybe the, because here's what I do know. You may not have, you know, Muslim neighbors that we talked about last week. You may not have people that are, um, uh, that practice or influenced by some type of Eastern religion like we're gonna talk about today. But I promise you, you have military people close to you, Right? And so uh, living in Hampton Roads, that is, uh, that is unavoidable. So make sure you're here um, for that and, and that'll, be, that'll be great. I look forward to, I'll be able to watch it maybe while I'm there, listen to it recorded because I think it's gonna be a, a huge blessing to our church. Um, last thing, and, and this is just uh, a continued matter of prayer for our congregation. We've concluded our 14 days of prayer for our search for our pastor of adult, out, uh, adult discipleship and outreach. But this Monday, our, uh, the advisory panel, our elders selected from our congregation to help us with the search. They've been doing a lot of work over the last few weeks. And we're having a meeting Monday before I leave for Africa to kind of do our initial reduction of candidates. And so they've, they've done an excellent job and, and have been working really, really hard, asking great questions and, and um we're, we're gonna do that work together on Monday. And so I just wanna pray for them because they, they've gotta get some of that work done uh, this week. So we wanna pray for those seven people, uh, men and women in our church who are serving on our advisory panel. And then um, we look forward to moving into that next phase and we'll keep you updated along the way. There's nothing, obviously there's no names or anything like that we can share with you at this point, but we hope to have something maybe by the end of the year to be able to share with you. And that's quickly approaching. So we're trying to stay on a schedule and. Um, we want to pray for our advisory panel. So that's how I want to open us up today. And uh, then we'll get started with our, our study together. So let's pray together. Father, I thank you that we could gather together and be here tonight. Our opportunity to continue to talk about the gospel for all. And as we approach a different subject tonight, uh, I pray God that you would uh, allow this to be a blessing in our lives uh, and to continue to strengthen us in our knowledge and desire of proclaiming the gospel uh, to everybody that we come in contact with and, and that we wouldn't be intimidated by from someone with a different background than us. Uh, we pray for the next couple of weeks where I'll be gone and uh, we'll have guests in here speaking. I'm, I'm grateful for the knowledge that they will bring for Gary, who's able to uh, share with us what, uh, what we need to know as far as um, relating to people in the military and, and how 
that ministry is unique and how our church can have ministry that is unique in that way. And also what uh, Pastor Michael, who's our family pastor, will be able to share with us and the expertise he has on working with children and teenagers. And so God, I pray that these would, those would be two uh, good Wednesday nights, uh, encouraging and instructing in this subject. Uh, we pray, God, for our uh, advisory panel who is uh, helping our elders in this search as they kind of near this first deadline. Would you um, direct them? Uh, we pray, show them um, uh, good things to look for, help them to, um, to have discernment as they wade through uh, resume after resume, stack after stack of information. Um, but would you just continue to guide them, we pray, uh, as a team, and then as they um, uh, begin to pass off information to our elders, we pray, God, for wisdom there as well, that ultimately you'll lead us uh, to the person that you would have um, in your will to serve as a part of our congregation in this pastoral role. Uh, help us to not get ahead of you, uh, but let us follow you in all things, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right. So I did, uh, I talked last week, if you weren't here, about um, sharing the gospel with, uh, with Muslims, uh, with uh, people who uh, are part of one of the largest religions in the world, obviously, and something that we know a lot about here in the United States, or we maybe think we know a lot about. Uh, and I kind of, I hoped I maybe challenged that a little bit last week, because I, I think Americans know a lot less about Islam than they, than they think they do. We know kind of what the news media portrays or whatnot. And I intended, I recommended one book. I recommended a book by uh, Thabiti Anyuwebele called uh, the, the Gospel for Muslims, um, which is a great little book. But it's not super informative as far as what Muslims believe. It's not the intent of the book. Um, and I've had several of you ask me some questions. I meant to bring this book in here last week. And so if you are one of those, you're like, I would really like to know more about what it is Muslims believe. I meant to recommend this last week and didn't bring it in here with me. This book's called 40 Questions About Islam. Um, I have recommended numerous uh, books in this series. Pretty much any time we approach a subject on Wednesday nights that deals with a... Um, with a subject that is in this series, I recommend a book in this series because I really, 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 really like this series. You will never go wrong buying a book in this series. It's, a 40, it's, the, it's called the 40 Question Series. Um, this book is by Matthew Bennett. The editor of this is Benjamin Merkel, who's at, um, uh, who is at Southern Seminary. And uh, I, would, I would just highly recommend this, this book to you. If you're interested in like, what is it that Muslims actually believe? Not, you know, what do I think they believe, but, but what do they actually believe? And there's, there's 40 different units in this. And the good thing about these books, you don't have to read them because it is a little thick, but you don't have to read it cover to cover, right? There's 40 questions. You can read them in any order that you want to read them in. And so like with the other 40 questions books that I've recommended to you, uh, I, wanted to, I wanted to just get that, get that out there to you. So 40 questions about Islam, edited by Benjamin Markle. If you, were, if you were interested in that. Meant to recommend it last week. This week, we're moving on to discussing uh, Eastern religion. And we're gonna primarily do this in focusing on uh, two different uh, Eastern religions. And I'm gonna do something a little different in that I'm gonna have a, a portion of our time talking about how these have influenced our culture. 
Uh, and then we'll obviously conclude with how are we sharing the gospel with people either who practice one of these Eastern religions uh, or people who have been influenced by them because we're, we're probably more likely to encounter people who, who uh, have been influenced by one of these religions than someone who actually practices them, even though there are lots of people in the United States who certainly do practice them. Their influence is wide. It's, it's reaching in our, in our culture through things like the New Age movement um, in the latter half of the 20th century and continuing through today. And so um, we, we, we may see some of these things, you, see, you may recognize some of this stuff. Now, Here's what, here's what I have to say, is I, I, and I try to do everything justice. Here's what I don't want to do. I, I really try to be careful, whether it's presenting world religions like Islam or Hinduism, Buddhism, like we'll talk about this week, um, previous weeks where, we, where we've talked about um, you know, spinoffs of, of Christianity that are, no, that are so much unlike Christianity that they're not Christianity anymore, like... like um, uh, LDS, uh, Mormons, or Jehovah's Witness, or, or other things that we've talked about. My goal is not to disparage anyone. And my goal is not to make you leave out of here going, man, these people are crazy, right? Because there are certainly people that could gather in other places and talk about us and talk about what we believe and think, man, those people are crazy. You don't have to look far in our culture for people that think, um, you know, evangelical Christians are crazy. And so that, that's, I don't, my intention is not to pile on uh, and say, well, look, here's how, you know, these people are, are just off. Although we do believe they're obviously wrong because we believe that the Bible makes mutually exclusive claims uh, of truth. And we want to contrast the claims, the truth claims of other religions with the truth claims of Christianity, because by knowing what those contrasts are, ultimately it leads us to be able to... Um, be able to uh, share the gospel with those people in an educated and informed and confident manner to where uh, we can lovely proclaim the truth of Jesus. And so that's always been my goal in this. That's going to be my goal again today. Um, but in, in the fact that I only have one week to do something with all of this, I have to paint with a very, very broad brush. And so there's times people will come to me and they're like, well, you didn't mention this and you didn't mention, it's because I don't have time to. Um, we would be doing this for a really long time. If I were to go into super depth with any of these things, it, we would have to, we'd have to spend weeks and weeks on, on each one. And that's not really the goal of this. The goal is to give you some big picture understandings and then, and then to, to really get into the, the unique claims of scripture compared to uh, what these religions practice and how we share the gospel uh, with, with those people. That is especially gonna be true today uh, when we when we talk about Eastern religions, uh, in the same way that we were talking about Islam last week, there are multiple practices within Islam. What, what we would refer to kind of as denominations, right? We think of denominational Christianity, where you have you know you have Catholicism versus Protestantism, and then inside of Protestantism you have mainline, and you have evangelical, and you have fundamental, and you have you know all of these things, right? Well, we know what some of those things are because we're in the midst of them. We don't know what a lot of those things are in other religions because we're not in the midst of them. We certainly don't have time to deal with them in here. And that's true about Hinduism and Buddhism that we're going to deal with today. I mean, these are religions practiced by, both of which are practiced by um, millions and millions of people worldwide. Uh, and, to, and to try to put them all into one little hole, you know, one little category is, is really difficult. So I'm just trying to give you broad strokes, okay? 
um, that may not be fully applicable in every situation, particularly if uh, modern and postmodern thought have influenced them. So just like modern and postmodern thought influenced Christianity um, and has led to um, theological liberalism and, and other things in our own culture, the same has happened in, in these other places as well. And you, you see that. So you may talk to somebody that is one of these other things, but don't necessarily hold to everything historically they've taught. Well, that's happened in Christianity too, right? And we see that um, kind of on display in our own culture. So we need to recognize there. So let's start by talking about Hinduism. Um, I'm going to talk about Hinduism and Buddhism, mainly, the, you know, again, broad brushes here. When you think Hinduism, you probably think India and rightly so, because that's where most Hindus are, although it's not exclusive to India. Um, there are other places in um, South, South Asia, Central Asia that, that practices and people, they're obviously worldwide now with, with the expansion of cultures around the globe. And then, and then Buddhism primarily being practiced in Southeast Asia, places like, or East Asia or Southeast Asia, places like China, Tibet being a, a very popular place in China, uh, Southeast Asia, Indonesia, uh, Thailand. These are places that, that you, you primarily would think of as, as practicing Buddhism. But these two religions are, are intricately connected in their histories um, in that Hinduism certainly predates Buddhism by, I don't know, 1,500 years or more. Uh, but Buddhism is an offshoot and became a very popular and has grown to be about the same size, really, as, as Hinduism and a, and a religion in its, in its own right. Um, in some ways, like Christianity was an offshoot of Judaism, right, and became a religion in, in its own right. The same thing happened um, with, with Buddhism and Hinduism. So let's just talk about Hinduism for a moment. It's, three, it's a 3,000 year old religion. It's a very old religion, okay? Um, so being 3,000 years old mean it, it predates Islam. It's twice as old as Islam is, if that tells you anything, right? There are 800 million Hindus worldwide, most of them again in India, uh, but there are over a million of them in the United States, people who would claim to practice Hinduism. So uh, most of these are going to be concentrated in specific cities. Uh, there are certain cities uh, that have higher South Asian populations than others, um, but there's, there's no one that really stands out, then, and there's no one region in the United States that stands out over others. Uh, this is, uh, there, there are Indian and Hindu communities in, out west, in the northeast, in the, in the south, Houston, for instance, Houston, Texas, a big, has a big Indian population, as well as uh, a lot of other cities uh, in, the, in the United States. When it, when it comes to trying to define Hinduism, it can sometimes be difficult because there is no official statement of belief that all Hindus subscribe to. Uh, even more so than Christians, because if we were to say, well, you know, is there one statement of faith that all Christians would ascribe, ascribe to? We would say, no, there, there really isn't, right? Baptists have the Baptist faith and message. Um, uh, a, lot of, a lot of other Protestants would, would hold to something like the Westminster Confession. Catholics would have Catholic dogma, right? But we could trace far, far back to things like the Apostles' Creed and say, hey, look, we, could all, we would probably all affirm, you know, the, the Apostles' Creed or some, some other ancient confessions of, of faith. Hindus really don't have that. And so the, it becomes more difficult to define Hindu doctrine outside of just painting with really, really broad brushes 
which, I, which is what I'm, I'm going to have to do. Because belief and practice, both belief and practice, uh, vary regionally and from one, what is known as a Hindu temple. So Hindus worship in what are known as temples, okay? And, and practice in one temple, um, it may be very, very different than practice and belief in another temple. And you're going to see why when we get to how they kind of outline their practices. There, there are distinct strands of Hinduism that kind of lead to this disparity. Um, common beliefs. So what will we could say, if we were just paint with a really broad brush and really big strokes, what are some common beliefs of Hinduism? Um, Hindus have a unique view of the universe, all Eastern religion, Hinduism, Buddhism, and even micro smaller Eastern religion sects that we're not going to be able to deal with tonight, um, have this, have this unique view of, uh, of the essence of the universe. And what a Hindu would say is that ultimately truth, not truth as we understand it, not biblical truth, but, but this somewhat, um, undefined idea of truth is the ultimate essence of the universe. They have a name for this. It's called Brahman. Now, not Brahma, the God, but Brahman, um, who is, is this formless, limitless, all-inclusive super entity that encompasses everything in the universe. So that everything, human beings, all matter, space, everything, right? Is, is made up of this essential truth. So everything is one in the, in the universe, okay? They do have scripture. It's the Vedas. It's the ultimate written authority in Hinduism is old Indian texts. There's not just, um, if we think about it in the, in the way that we think about the Bible, right? People that don't know much about Christianity would say, oh, Christians believe the Bible. And then if you really start studying the Bible, what do you find out? The Bible's not one book, it's 66 books. And it's not 66 books that comprise one book. It's actually 66 books comprised into two testaments, right? One with 39, one with 27. Um, Hinduism's very similar. There's actually four different books and each have different parts. Um, and and these, these, these writings are, are, are very ancient, go, go way back. Um, some Hindus actually reject the Vedas authority over life and Hinduism. Some embrace it. Uh, probably the largest sect that long ago that, in, that rejected it ultimately becomes Buddhist. That's how you got Buddhism was partially through the rejection of the, the Hindu scriptures. Um, so some Hindus reject, it, reject its authority, some embrace its authority. Many modern people that practice Hinduism would give lip service to its authority, but would not actually practice very much of what it says, uh, which sounds an awful lot like cultural Christianity to me, right? That, oh yeah, we should do what the Bible says, but then they don't actually ever go out and do what the Bible says to do. Well, they have that problem in Hinduism as well. Um, what you probably associate most often with Hinduism is, um, is polytheism, right? The worship of numerous gods. And what Hinduism practices is that really, it, it's not just that there is this pantheon of gods as in like with Greek and Roman mythology, but that there is an actual endless number of possibilities as far as the, um, the expressions of Brahman, who is that entity, right? That all encompassing entity, that all of their pantheon of gods, that anyone who would ever 
have represented God in any way is ultimately an extension of Brahman, which is, by the way, how they see Jesus, is that Hindus have no problem at all with Jesus, by the way, because they would just see Jesus as another extension, another expression of Brahman in the world that, that God revealed himself, their understanding of God revealed himself in in hundreds and hundreds of ways, many of these being immortalized in uh, what we would probably consider most likely relate to idolatry and, and, and the worship of, worship of gods. I'm going to get back to that idea in a minute. Um, and so that's, that's kind of how they would, would understand God, so kind of one God that then expresses himself in these hundreds and hundreds of, of forms. As far as it relates to man and, and you know, our position and relation to God is that they believe all beings have, all souls are immortal. And not only human souls, but all souls, that everything, and this is, you know, where you get, um, you know, the, re the, the reverence of, of cows and other animal life and other things like that in, in Hindu culture is because many of these things have souls that are immortal, that have been reincarnated. And so all immortal souls are trapped in the cycle of reincarnation and karma. So there's, there's a cycle of karma is, is the good deeds that you do. You, you're very familiar with that word, probably even if you've never heard it because it is work, even if you've never associated it with Hinduism. Uh, or Buddhism, both of which use that word, um, it has worked its way into American vernacular uh, in, in a very common way. Like we, you hear that word a lot, which is one of the issues that we're going to talk about. Um, but in, in the practice of Hinduism, what, what they believe in the belief system is that you're stuck in this cycle of you're reincarnated, you get new birth, and you come as some, maybe a human, maybe something else, and you, you try to do as good as you can until you die. And then based off of your karma, based off of what you did or didn't do, uh, you come back in another form of something else. And that this is an, an ongoing repeated cycle until, you, until the cycle is finally broken. And there's three practices within, I told you, there's kind of three different ways of thinking. And from one temple to another, it'd be very different. And this is why, because Hindus have set out to break the cycle of reincarnation and karma in three ways. Now, obviously, if somebody's going to ascribe to one of these ways, they're going to think that's the best way, but Hinduism kind of allows for any of the three. Right? So it's, it's perfectly fine for a Hindu to practice one way when someone else is practicing another way. It's just your way. Everybody's trying to achieve the same goal, and that is breaking the, the cycle of reincarnation and karma. So the three ways. The first way is the way of works. Now, this seems very common to us. This one's going to make a lot of sense because it's honestly what most people in the world do. Hindus have just found their own unique spin on it, right? What's the way of works? It's trying to be good enough to break the cycle. Now, they would, they would articulate it like this. They're, try, they're seeking salvation. They're seeking to break that cycle through purifying the soul, through obedience to the Vedas, to, the, to their scriptures. So they want to obey what their scriptures say, things to do, things not to do, and to do that well through every cycle of life and to do it well enough to where the, the cycle is broken and they're able to, um, to, to achieve one 
because that's the ultimate goal, right? Is to, in, in Hinduism, is to achieve oneness with Brahman and to be one with the universe and to avoid that cycle, not to have to live in this uh, reincarnation cycle anymore. This is the one that makes the most sense to us probably because we, we just, I mean, people do this. People do this in, as we go back several weeks ago into when we talked about cultural Christianity, a huge part of cultural Christianity people who are not actually in Christ, but who would tell you that they are, are a Christian, uh, this is what they're trying to do. They're trying to be good enough. It's a big issue within, within Hinduism. The second is the way of knowledge. The way of knowledge um, seeks salvation through self-denial and actually being one with Brahman. So the, the way of knowledge, it's not knowledge as we often think of knowledge, as in like study and book learning, um, but it is, think about it more in an Eastern religion, mysticism type understanding. If you think of knowledge in that way, then you kind of get a picture of this, right? This is, the, this is the deep meditation and the becoming one with the universe. So it's not so much about what you do, but how you're training your mind, emptying your mind to become something in our, in, to become one with, with the universe, ultimately achieving the same end as those that are on the ways of works. The third is the way of devotion. This is the most common in India, most common practice among Hindus, and truthfully, because it's the easiest, okay? And that is the way of devotion. The, the way of devotion seeks salvation by devotion to one of the particular gods. And here's the idea. And I, uh, look, this is simplifying it, Okay. So I'm sorry to do that, but it's the, it's the amount of time I have. The idea is simple. Pick a God, worship that God, be devoted to that God, be dedicated to that God's temples so that when you die, that God will have been pleased enough with your life to bring you on and break the cycle. That, that is seems easier than the other two, right? Because the whole, goal, the whole goal is to just be dedicated and to be dedicated to this one God. And it doesn't, like, when you find Hindus that are dedicated to certain gods, they are very dedicated to their God. They'll have shrines to their God. Um, but th this is what they're attempting to do. They're attempting to prove their dedication and then that version of God will ultimately bring you on into uh, in, you know, into perfect peace with the universe. Um, the, the, my research tells me this is the most common, um, but my time in India also tells me this is the most common. Uh, most of you know, we adopted our second son uh, from India six, seven years ago now, 2014. So seven years ago. Wow, time flies. Um, and Christy and I spent 18 days in India in two different cities and I'm not one to just sit around. I, you know, if I'm going to go somewhere, I'm going to, I'm going to go somewhere. Unfortunately, I've, I've traveled a lot in the world and I'm not scared to just get in a taxi or whatever and go somewhere. And so we, we went a lot of places, saw a lot of things. And, um, if you've never been in kind of an Eastern South, South Asia, East Asia, Southeast Asia kind of culture, if you have been, you know exactly what I'm going to say. Um, it is, it is super common. One of the most common stores that you will see in India are stores that sell idols. Um, and these aren't little stores. 
And they sell all kinds of idols, little bitty idols, huge ones. I mean, gold, silver, you know, whatever, any, you know, however much money you could spend, you could spend on it. Um, and, and Christy and I, we just kind of became this thing with us. Like we, every time we would pass one, it was like, here's another false God store. Because I mean, that's what it, ultimately these are just like false God stores, you know, where you can go in and, and buy whichever one you want. And that's what they did. They would, I mean, they have these shrines set up. It's kind of what you're picturing of Hinduism really is this way of devotion. It's uh, be dedicated to a God, ultimately hoping to please that God to the point where they would um, break that cycle for you. Now, let's talk about Buddhism because Buddhism is interesting. You know, Buddhism and Hinduism are very different now, uh, but they started off the same thing. The, the man who founded the original Buddha, uh, who has a name, but it has left me at the moment. Um, uh, his name was not originally Buddha, by the way. It's a name. He took on the, he took on the title of the Buddha um, about... He was born around 600 BC. So we're, we're talking about uh, 2,600 years ago. So uh, it, it, obviously Hinduism had been being practiced for a few centuries. And there was this guy began, began, tra- began a traveler and traveled around. And what he noticed as he traveled around um, Asia was that suffering is extensive. And he went back to, uh, to study Hinduism and ended up rejecting the Hindu scriptures because he found them to be unable to ease the suffering of mankind and unable to break the cycle of rebirth, that cycle of reincarnation and karma. He found that, that Hinduism wasn't the answer, but he didn't reject the problem. His goal was to develop a new answer. And uh, there are now 600 million Buddhists worldwide. So there's less Buddhists than Hindus, but not by a lot, right? 800 million Hindus, 600 million uh, Buddhist, and there's about as many Buddhists in the United States as there are Hindus. There's right around a million uh, in in the United States that that say they practice Buddhism. All of Buddhism revolves around that idea of suffering, and so what what the original Buddha what Buddha found was that suffering is the problem, and the way to break that cycle of suffering, you ready for it, is to suffer. <laughs> that the more you suffer. The, the better off you are, the more ability you have to break it. Their ultimate goal is to achieve what they would call nirvana, an ultimate state of perfect peace, happiness, enlightenment. So it's similar to Hinduism. The goal is to be one with the universe, right? And, and to, to, to finally break that cycle. So uh, what was developed within Buddhism was known as four noble truths. And these are the four noble truths, all of them dealing with suffering, right? The first is there is pain and suffering in the world. Well, we would affirm that, right? Now, we would call, we would say, Christianity would say that pain and suffering in the world is a result of sin. Um, Buddhists would say pain and suffering in the world is a result of the cycle of reincarnation. Um, the second noble truth is the attachments to, is that attachments to people and things cause suffering. So that we bring suffering into our lives because we are attached to the natural world. Because we've not achieved this position of enlightenment and we continue in this cycle uh, of being reborn into a natural world where we develop attachments to people and we attach attachments to things in this world, we end up um, continuing to suffer. The third noble truth is the suffering will stop when a person can rid himself of these desires. That if you can break yourself of these, the desire to be attached to people and things, uh, you will actually, you'll be able to break that 
break that cycle. And then the fourth is that there is a path. Uh, it is called the eightfold path, but there is a path that, ex that extinguishes all of these desires. So these are the eight desires. You're supposed to, um, to change your desire by having a right understanding, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So you, you've got to change, and, and you've got to be able to do this over probably the course of several cycles of rebirth and, and uh, you know, reincarnation, and you've got to get all of those things right. Your right understanding, thought, speech, action, livelihood, effort, mindfulness, and concentration. And once you have all of those things right, then you finally break the cycle. So Hinduism and Buddhism are intricately tied in their foundings together. Obviously, Hinduism predating. Oh, by the way, Hinduism didn't start in India either. It started in Europe. It was, it was brought into, into India. Um, but now, obviously, that's the primary place that we see it practiced. Um, and then um, Buddhism brought kind of offshoots from Hinduism uh, a couple of thousand years ago, more than a couple of thousand years ago, and really gets embraced in the Western portion of China and uh, Southeast Asia and lot, several Southeast Asian countries. Uh, and there's a lot more to it than both of those things. But that, that's kind of the, that's the big picture, the broad strokes. Now, here's what we've got to understand. And I, and I think if, you're, if you take a kind of step back and just look at our culture over the last 50 years or so, there's been great influence in, in Western civilization and Western culture uh, by Eastern religion. Now, let me, let me give you just one little caveat. There is no salvation in Western culture either, <laughs> Okay. Even though Western culture up until post-modernity in many ways embraced some Christian ideals, th there has never been a true Christian culture within, and I've, we've presented this before. But, so here's what I don't want to do. I don't want to elevate Western civilization, or I don't want to talk here about how Eastern religion has, has influenced Western civilization. I don't want to elevate Western civilization in some way that somebody's going to walk out of here and think, well, if we could just think like, you know, Western Europeans, then we would be, we would be right. That's, that's not to say that, but we do live in a Westernized culture because we live in Western culture. We need to see how Eastern religions have influenced that because you may not have a Hindu neighbor, but you very well may have somebody in your direct circle of influence who does practice some things that come out of Hinduism or Buddhism, and they don't even know they do it. And they're, and they're giving themselves over to some of these things. And uh, you, you, you may find yourself sharing the gospel with somebody that's far more influenced by them than you, than you know. So when I say that they've influenced Western culture, I don't mean to elevate Western culture. It just means this is what we live in, right? So it's, it's what we have. So where do we see some of those um, some of those influences. The first is, it's important to recognize that there are, if these statistics are true, I believe they are, um, there are a couple of million people in America that practice Hinduism and Buddhism. Um, and, and so you very well may um, be, be exposed to one at some point in work or in your neighborhood. There are certainly some here 
um, in our community, and there are certainly larger pockets, as it is in many uh, migrant uh, migrant patterns. Um, many times, these people, as as do everybody, as do everybody else that migrates somewhere, um, end up in pockets, right? And so we have we look across American culture and we see pockets of Islam in certain places, just like we did in like the 1800s where. Uh, you ended up with Little Italy in New York and you had the Irish in Boston. That's just the way migratory patterns work. Well, it works that same way um, with people moving from the East uh, into the United States. And so we see a lot of this, obviously, in places like San Francisco, in the Deep South, in Houston, and, and other places that have large uh, Asian, South Asian, East Asian, Southeast Asian populations. And so we need to recognize that people actually practicing these religions are here, but there are certain streams that have rolled out of them that have been embraced through things like the New Age movement, through postmodernism in, in our culture, and you may not even realize they're there. So let's just talk about what a few of these things are first. Um, what I'm going to call, and I'm just, I kind of wrote some of these things down and so just think about them um, quickly. Uh, I'm just going to call it the empty, empty mind philosophy. So anything that calls you to empty your mind has roots in Eastern religion. It may not look Eastern religion anymore, okay? I'm gonna, please don't get offended by this, but I may offend one or two of you. It may look like an American yoga studio, okay? But if what they're telling you to do is to empty your mind, right, and to kind of, become one with your surroundings. This is Eastern religion, okay? Now, some, and there's, there's writings and there's not time to go into all of it. Some would go as far as to say, no Christian should practice anything that looks like this, right? So you know, Christians shouldn't go practice, shouldn't you know, do yoga exercises because, okay, I don't go that far. But I do say that if, if what you're being instructed to do, if, if all you're doing is some stretches, I, I'm okay, right? But if what you're being instructed to do, and some see like these things are so in, intricately tied, but Christians are instructed to fill their minds, not empty their minds, right? We're supposed to, we're, we're supposed to hide God's word in our heart, not you know, try to become this blank canvas. And that's, that's the difference between Christianity and Eastern religion. And we see a lot of this in in our culture. Yoga is not the only place that we see it, but we do certainly do see it in some at least traditional forms of the practice of, of yoga. Second would be an alternative, an alternative medicines and healing practices. Um, alternative medicines is really interesting um, in a effort to reject things like, uh, you know, big pharma and medicinal, you know, drugging people for everybody, which by the way, this is not an endorsement of any of that. Okay, but in an effort to reject those things, uh, what a lot of people have done, even Christians in America, is they have run to a whole nother version of it, uh, and that it's Eastern medicine, and um, oftentimes it's called you know alternative medicine, but ultimately it finds its roots in Hinduism and Buddhism. Okay, uh, and and so these things will have these things will have. Uh, begin to have influence on, on people. Any discussion of karma. I really don't think Christians ought to use the word karma at all. Like we need to remove that from our vernacular 
as we're talking about people. Because you'll hear people, I think it's just really common for Americans to say, I'm not going to say the actual phrase because there's a bad word in it. Um, and now you all know what I was meaning. But that, you know, people will attribute stuff to karma. I don't know how to, how to rephrase it. I should have thought about that before I came in here. People will attribute, you know, stuff to karma. When something bad happens to a bad person, we attribute that bad thing happening to them to karma, right? Well, well karma is not a Christian principle at all. Now, there is a principle of you reap what you sow, but the biblical principle of you reap what you sow shouldn't always be applied in that way. We, that's, a, that's another lesson for another day. But we probably ought to remove that language from our vernacular altogether um, because here's ultimately what we're saying. When we, when we say that, when we say, you know, karma catches up to somebody, that's a good way I can phrase it, that karma catches up to somebody, ultimately what we're attributing to is the Eastern religion practice of the universe having its way in people's lives. And you hear people use that same kind of language all the time, right? That the universe, you know, the universe will catch up to you or, you know, you can only do things so long and then the universe is gonna, you know, all of that, all of that language of universe and life force and energies and chi, right? All of that finds its roots in either Hinduism, Buddhism, or both. And we got to be really careful, and of course, as Christians, we need to be really careful about what of that we allow to influence us. But we also must recognize that it is highly influential in, in Western culture today. Um, all right. So then, if we know there are a couple of million people that practice these religions in the United States, and maybe you know some of them. Um, I've always found it really interesting. My uh, grandparents, when they retired uh, from ministry, moved to, Houston, moved to Dallas, Texas, to be close to my, um, my aunt lived there. And my grandfather was in ministry for a really, really long time and retired, and they moved there. And they ultimately, they ended up getting to where they couldn't take their house, they sold their house and moved into a little apartment. And they became very, very good friends with the couple that lived next door to them who were like practicing Hindus. And I always enjoyed, my grandfather's now passed, my grandmother lives in a um, assisted living facility now, but they lived next to these people for, for years. My grandmother became very good friends with the woman. Um, and uh, they became such good friends that they started inviting them over to like Indian holidays. And my grandparents loved, loved food. And that's just, so they, would, they were always like, um, really kind of enamored by some of it and, and never compromised or always willing to share their faith and to, and to kind of reach out. These people never came to, to know Jesus, but here it is, like my retired grandparents ended up probably the last people that they greatly influenced with the gospel was this um, Hindu couple that lived next door to them in, these, in this apartment complex. So you never know when God's going to bring one of these people into your path, or they're going to bring somebody into your path that's being influenced through one of these kind of philosophies that flows out of it. And as they are, what are things that we need to keep in mind? Well, a couple of things important for us to keep in mind is that Eastern religion is vastly different than the Abrahamic faiths. Okay. So it's not like Christianity at all. It's not like Judaism at all. It's not like Islam at all, okay? They're, they're inherently different. They come from a different culture. They're an entirely different worldview. They're based on entirely different principles. 
you know, we have seen, we talked about it last week with Islam. We talked about it with, with Mormonism. We, we always have kind of some of these overlaps. Folks, there aren't overlaps because they are entirely different systems based on principles that are diametrically opposed to each other. And so in, in situations like that, it's, it's often important to kind of define some terms, right? That you want to make sure that what you're saying and what I'm saying um, are actually the same thing. That when, when I use the word God and you use the word God, what, what are we talking about? When I talk about Jesus, right, it can be easy to talk to somebody about Jesus or easy to talk to a Hindu about Jesus and the Hindus say, well, yeah, I, I embrace Jesus. I'm, I'm all for you uh, in embracing Jesus. When we went to um, adopt AJ, I should have had a picture of this, sorry, because we have a picture of it. Um, there was every, any building you went into had a shrine. I mean, any building you went into had a shrine. There was a shrine in his orphanage and we went and visit his orphanage every day for several days. Uh, they did an interview ceremony. There's pictures, you can find them online of, of me with the little, little dot stuff on our head. They did that stuff. We did a whole, like there was a whole ceremony and they did it. Um, and, uh, but there was a shrine there that had several gods in it and included in the shrine was both a picture of Mary and a picture of Jesus, just like hanging out in the shrine with Vishnu and the other, you know, the, the other Hindu gods. And, uh, and it's because they're fine. Like that, that's fine, you know, because that's just another expression of the universe, right? So you really have to kind of define some terms. You just recognize that you're, you're going to, these are going to require conversations that, uh, that make sure Okay, I understand what you believe and you understand what I believe, but I want to give you three questions that I think are helpful to, an, to ask and to provide a biblical answer for that, that may help. The first is the question of what actually makes one a person right. Because if you remember, right, the, within Hindus, there, there's the, the way of works, the way of knowledge, the way of devotion. And the goal of all of these is to ultimately be right. Now, their understanding would be to be right with the universe, to be made one with the universe, to rid yourself of of this cycle of, of karma and reincarnation. But all, the ultimate question, you can ask this question, what, what, what makes one right? Because an Eastern religion is gonna say good practice of varied kind, whether it's some type of, within Hinduism, again, you know, devotion to um, knowledge, devotion to works, devotion to a God within Buddhism, um, you know, self-denial and sacrifice and the embracing of suffering that if we'll, we'll do those things right, we'll, we'll ultimately break the cycle and be right. But when we go to, we contrast that with Christianity, we go to a place like Romans chapter three, which says none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So here's the, here's the contrast in this first, you know, to this first question between Eastern religion and, and Christianity. Because Eastern religion says, according to one of those four paths, the three paths of Hinduism or the one path within uh, the, you know, the eightfold path within, within Buddhism says you can accomplish this by devotion, works, knowledge, self-denial. And Christianity says, no, you can't. Now they would say, well, maybe it's going to take you, you know, numerous lifetimes and multiple cycles for you to be able to do this. No, even if that were true, what Christianity, which it's not, but what Christianity teaches is even if you had multiple lifetimes 
What's, what's always going to be the case? None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So we, we, we engage in gospel conversations with somebody that, is, that, that practices this religion, has been influenced by this religion, to be able to say, you'll never be able to do this on your own. You'll never be able to make yourself right on your own. The second question is to just talk about what happens when you die. I think it's actually helpful to sit down with somebody and have that, have that discussion. For those of you that have been Southern Baptist for a long time, you remember you know, faith training. I was a faith trainer at one point. Some of you were probably training. That, for those of you that may have no idea what I'm talking about, like, Wait, faith training, what's that? Uh, it, was a, it was a very popular early 2000s way of Southern Baptist training to share the gospel. Each letter stood for something. Uh, but there was what was known as the key question. Does anybody remember what the key, anybody went through faith? What was the key question? You remember the key question? In your personal opinion, what does it take for a person to go to heaven? Yeah, understanding the things that we told you, you read, yeah. So, so this, was, this was what you would try to get with people, right? You would try to get them to talk about what happens next. Well, that's actually a great thing to do with, with um, people who practice Eastern religions because what happens next is the same cycle that they're already on. And maybe they've not done really well this cycle and they're going to come back, you know, as a poor person or as a bug or, you know, something not good. I don't know. I don't know all the things they can come back as. I guess it probably varies amongst the strains. But um, I know the thing you want to come back as is a cow. Like that's like the, the ultimate. Um, but they, you know, they're on, this, they're on this cycle, right? And so we would say, well, what, what happens when you die? And they would see a cycle of, of rebirth. We could go to a place like Hebrews 9, 27 that says, and just as appointed man wants to die, and after that comes judgment. That you get, you get one go around this merry-go-round, this merry right? Like you, get, you got one ticket, that's all. You don't get to ride it multiple times. And here's the unique thing about reincarnation. The way that a Western civilization Americans have kind of embraced the idea of reincarnation is, is you see this kind of show up in the way people talk is we've embraced reincarnation as a good thing. Not we as in the church, but like people within American culture who think at least want to believe or maybe want to believe in reincarnation. It's always painted as like this positive, right? Oh yeah, you know. I'm on, you know, I'm, I'm going to come back as something. It's always, they always think they're going to come back as something better than, than what they are. And, and they look back on past lives and it's all this new age stuff, right? And then, you know, exploring, you know, the influence of your past lives. And it's always, you know, kind of this better and reincarnation is painted in a good light. Eastern religion actually doesn't do that. that that's not really an, a right understanding of it because they, they would consider themselves to be trapped in a cycle. That the goal is not to be reincarnated. The goal is to be free of it. And so there's an appeal to, that a Christian can make to someone and say, you're not trapped in this cycle. You're actually only living the life that you have now and what you do with the gospel is going to determine what happens at judgment. Because it is appointed to man once to die. You're only going to get to die once. And when you do, you're going to face God. 
who righteously judges. The final question is ultimately, where is their hope for eternal peace? Because Eastern religion says the hope is to one day break the cycle, whether it's Buddhism and following that eightfold path or it's Hinduism and following one of those ways, you know, works, knowledge, devotion. The goal is to be able to do that enough to achieve some kind of nirvana and some kind of oneness with the universe and to hopefully get to do that in centuries or millennia even in the future as you continue on this seemingly endless cycle. But Christianity paints a much better picture of hope. In 1 Peter chapter 1, we read, He who was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raises him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Our hope isn't in, you know, one day I'm going to achieve something. Our hope is in he who was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but made manifest in the last times. Who's that? Jesus, right? Who through him, not because of something we've done, but through him, we are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that in faith and hope, our, our faith and hope are in God. So where's our, where's our hope? Their hope is in some kind of distant idea of achieving enlightenment. Our hope is in a past work of Jesus, that Jesus did something, right? So it's, here's, what, here's what Christianity offers that Eastern religion doesn't. The words of Jesus in Matthew 11, come to me all who, are lab who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. The ultimate goal of Eastern religion is this peace and oneness with the universe. And we see that not only in the practice of those who, who are actually practicers of, you know, practitioners of these religions, but we see those, those tentacles reaching in to American culture in so many ways and people talking about being one with the universe and finding peace and even the way that we express, and I don't think it comes from Eastern religion, but the way that we so often express hope for people who have died by saying they're, they're what now? Resting in peace, right? Well, people, or culture has embraced that, not in a Christian sense, but in a, well, they're now at peace. They're, they've gone on. Who actually finds rest? Who is promised rest? The only people who are promised rest, well, that's the goal of Eastern religion. There's no, there's, there's no outcome that gives them rest. It's only through Jesus. Jesus calls those who have the burden of works and the burden of sin and says, put that on me and come and rest in me. Um, You may be exposed to people like this. You will certainly be exposed to people who have been influenced by it. And, and here should be our hope. Our, our, our hope shouldn't be, you notice, I didn't tell you to stop doing yoga if you do yoga. I, our, our goal isn't to tell somebody to stop, you know, practicing alternative medicine. Our, our goal isn't works anyway, is it, folks? Our goal is that people have hope in the gospel. And so whether it's somebody that's an ardent practicer of one of these religions or someone who is just influenced by and have kind of, as so many Americans have done, pieced together their own little belief system. And a lot of those pieces now we're seeing come out of 
come out of Eastern religions. Here's what we want to we offer them. We want to offer them the peace that's found in Jesus alone. And knowing what those beliefs are helps us to be able to actively engage and to define terms and to be able to bring people the good news of the gospel. So let's, uh, let's close our time together in prayer. Father, I, I thank you that you didn't set up a system, that we can have faith in knowing this, that we live but one life. And the system with which you have set up for your world to work is not one of constant rebirth and judgment. But it is one where you judge every being, every human being after their death. And they can be judged based on their own works or of the works of Jesus Christ applied to their lives. We thank you, God, for the imparted righteousness of Christ that gives us eternal hope. I pray, God, as we go to share that with people that we would not only believe it, but that we would communicate it well that it would flow from us because we know it is our only hope in life and death. I pray that you would lead these people into our lives. Allow us to have conversations with them. Allow us to befriend them well and to show them the love of Jesus as we do. Uh, We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So folks, thanks for being here with us. I wanna remind you, I'm not here next week, but I want you here next week really important topic of conversation. Guy's named Gary Sanders. That's who's going to be here. Uh, Be here on time. He'll get started right at 630. It'd be a great opportunity for us to hear about uh, how we can share the gospel and reach out in uh, in a military community. I know that's going to be a blessing to us. So thanks for being here. God bless you.